This is The Black Box. Emergency response executive Ken Jenkins draws from his years of experience in deployment, logistics, planning, and after-action analysis to take you inside The Black Box. Now, here's Ken Jenkins. Hello, I'm Ken Jenkins, and welcome to The Black Box. Today's podcast edition is going to be different than the previous ones in that I'm going to actually answer the questions, and the producer of the show, Zach Lewis, is actually going to ask the questions. Zach, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Really good, thank you. And, and you know, we decided to do this because um, a number of people email me um, questions, and, and there's a theme to the questions, and so I've taken five or six of those questions to try to answer um, during the podcast today. So I want to turn them over to you and and, and feel free. Don't limit yourself to those questions. Sure. If you think of something else you want to ask, feel free to do so. Well, well thanks for uh, sitting down with me. I appreciate it. And one of the first things I normally ask people when they come in is, uh, you know, how'd you get here? Well, what, what brings you in? And of course, you're doing a podcast, but I mean, like in a broader sense, uh, how'd you get to where you are now? You know, I, I hear you. I hear you have quite the... Uh, Quite, quite the rocky, <laughs> rocky, the rocky career path. path. You've been a little all over the place. Yeah, well, that sounds interesting. A rock, maybe we should change that from rocky career path. Um, actually, you know, um, <laughs> um, I started. Well, first of all, by way of background, I guess best way to say is I have 30 years aviation experience, um, working for three major carriers. Uh, the first airline I worked for was Braniff Incorporated, which was actually a subsidiary of Braniff, and that was back in the and I hate to say this, the late 70s. And I was going to school at the time um, for my undergraduate uh, degree, decided that um, I was going to go back to school. I did that for a semester or two, got, stayed with the aviation bug, and went to work for Frontier Airlines in Kansas City, Kansas. And that's the original Frontier, original simply meaning before they ever had gone bankrupt. And as I worked there, and I was there for, I think, less than a year, and I decided, you know, I really should get my, my, my undergraduate degree. I was going to be a lawyer. Um, decided aviation probably really wasn't what I wanted to do long term. So I went back to school, finished my undergraduate degree in political science and history. And my senior year in school, Zach, um, American Airlines started hiring. And I thought, oh, you know, before I go to law school, and I'd already taken my law school admission test exam, um, and I was getting ready to apply to schools, and I thought I'd take a year off, work for a large air carrier that flies around the world and go see the world, and I wound up staying 26 years. Wow. And yeah, I know, I certainly hadn't planned that. That was starting in 1982. In 1993, I got a letter. I was working as a financial analyst in human resources, and I got a letter um, inviting me to a new program that American was starting called the Customer Assistance Relief Effort. And it was a program where volunteers such as myself would work with families in the aftermath of an accident. And um, I went to the class, and I think I was in the second class of Memory Serves Me. This was in 1993. It was two days. It was very intense. It was very emotional. Um, and, you know, I applauded our airline for doing this. I think American was the first to actually have a formalized program right. where they actually trained people. Um, to work in the aftermath of a disaster. And our facilitator said, you know, we'll never use this training, but if we have to, we'll prepare. <laughs> sure, well, yeah. And, and you're laughing because you know it's going to happen. Right. As soon as you throw that out into the universe, something's going to happen. And it did. About three weeks later or so, we had a DC-10 plane, a DC-10 aircraft hydroplane off the runway at DFW Airport. It was a complete whole loss. Oh. Uh, the, the plane was just 
toast and um, everybody survived thankfully um, a number of people went to the hospital and the care team was activated uh, myself and a care team partner went to the hospital to work with a gentleman that was injured and we got him dry clothes got him in touch with his family this was long before mobile phones like iPhones and Androids and Samsung phones today and um, you know we, we were fortunate one everybody survived and that our response was was short in duration and that we could kind of debrief that afterwards and say hey what worked well what didn't work well and thankfully you know it wasn't worse and you know but the next 10 years wouldn't be kind to american airlines we we wound up having eight fatality events between 1994 and 2004 Mm. and i responded to each of those events in 1994 american eagle flight 4184 uh, on Halloween night, crashed in Roseland, Indiana. It killed 68 people, two pilots, two flight attendants, and 64 passengers. And I worked with a family who uh, was a young lady uh, that was married, um, no children at the time. And I worked with her husband and uh, the passenger's mom and um, stepfather and siblings in the aftermath. And we were in in uh, Chicago area for about three, three and a half weeks working with them in the aftermath. And we came home and, um, you know, we were tired and and, and emotionally uh, exhausted, as I'm sure family members are after going through such an ordeal. And on December 13th, and I'll never forget December 13th, 1994, I was at a um, critical incident stress debrief with several other care team members. And people were talking about they were having dreams of another accident and things of that nature. And that was at three in the afternoon. We finished that debrief. And about three hours later, American Eagle Flight 3379 crashed on approach into Raleigh-Durham. Wow. And um, there were 20 people on board that aircraft, 15 fatalities, five survivors. We didn't have any new care team members at that at that time because, you know, we'd all been deployed for 4184. And now we're being deployed for 3379. And I worked with um, – a family who had two people on board. It was a husband and wife, and the husband survived, and the wife did not. And we were um, working with them for about 10 days, got home just two days before Christmas. Um, it was just an awful time period for the airline, and, and it continued through 2004. Um, in 1995, American Airlines Flight 965 crashed in the Andes Mountains, and then we had Little Rock, Arkansas in 1999 on June 1st. Uh, recently, we just had the anniversary of 9-11, where American Airlines had two flights, Flight 11 and 77, and um, hijacked and used as weapons of mass destruction. And two months after that event was American Airlines Flight 587 that crashed in New York. And then a partner airline called Corporate Airlines, it was actually flying under the colors of American, uh, red, white, and blue, Scissor Eagle on the tail called American Connection. That was in Kirksville, Missouri in, I believe that was October 2004. So I went from being a volunteer to teaching the class to being a senior analyst and to being a manager. I never did become a lawyer. I did get my master's degree (laughs) in uh, aeronautical science, uh, specializing in aviation safety. And and that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Well, we've only got a little bit of time left, and so maybe this will be kind of a teaser question leading up into the next segment, but I wanted to inquire. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of aeronautical uh, dis- or aviation disasters that a lot of people uh, remember. Society seems to, you know, keep these in mind. Something mm-hmm. like Malaysia Flight 370, of course, mm-hmm. 9-11. Uh, these are things that, that really stick with society. But you, working so closely in this industry, I wanted to ask, and uh, yeah, we may not have time to get to this, but... 
Is there any specific event that has stuck with you personally? One that you, you, you always remember, you think of, that you're like, that's the one that was just out of something perplexing about it. I mean, was there anything like that? I, I remember all of them. Um, but I tell you what, let's do this. Let's take a break and let's come back and talk about which ones um, hang with me the most. Buckle up. More of The Black Box is next on RNCN. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio. You're tuned in to The Black Box with Ken Jenkins on RNCN. Welcome back to The Black Box with Ken Jenkins on RNCN. I'm sitting here, of course, with Ken Jenkins. Ken was kind enough to let me uh, intro the segment, so thanks, Ken, for that. You're welcome, Zach. I want to jump right back into uh, where we left off with the... Kind of a hard-hitting question, but uh, you know, there's a lot of events that people remember. A lot of a lot of aviation disasters, uh, 9/11, Malaysia flights 370. Um, I mean, there's there's a ton of them. Um, but I wanted to ask you, working in this industry, what is uh, a particular one that, that that sticks with you? You know, Zach, that's a great question, and it's one that um, I've been asked quite a few times during my career. And um, you know, in all sincerity, they're all uh, important, and and they all stay in my mind um, and they come up at different times uh, they always come up around the anniversary certainly a few days before the anniversary of the accident um, the first accident fatality accident I responded to was flight 4184 and that plane crashed on Halloween night so you know Halloween's big at our house um, we do a huge set we go through 90 pounds of candy you know kids are are, are, are coming in from all over the neighborhood and of surrounding course. neighborhoods it, it's great fun but there's always this sadness that I feel because I know 68 people died that day. And when you go back through aviation history, there are a number of accidents are on Halloween. And so Halloween, um, and then unfortunately, um, several years ago, my mother passed away and she died on Halloween. So Halloween is kind of one of those um, uh, interesting holidays in, in my household. Um, and as I mentioned, they're all memorable and they all impact me. Uh, most recently, I think, though, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the 15-year anniversary of September 11th, and that was a tragedy beyond all others in that it was a worldwide tragedy, and when there's a plane crash, it makes national news if it's in the United States and it goes worldwide. Actually, any plane crash today, you hear about it worldwide, but not like you did 9-11, um, and it was, as horrific as 9-11 was, Zach, there were some really great things that came from that in terms of being able to see the humanity of U.S. citizens and, and people from around the world that were sending donations of money and cards and things like that to the family members that lost people on the planes and in the World Trade Center. So it's memorable for a number of reasons outside of the tragedy itself, but also seeing the positive things. Um, but other than that, I'd say... Th- they all stay with you, and they all come back at different times. This year, of course, marks the 15th uh, anniversary of 9-11. Hard to believe that there are freshmen in high school who weren't alive when 9-11 happened. I mean, it just seemed so immediate, and it's something that I think, uh, you know, we as, we as a nation struggle to cope with. But it being particularly in this business, 
there, there, I mean, there, 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 you've seen some things, of course, that are that are that are a little rough. I think for the average individual, mm-hmm. do, do you or others on your team have a particularly difficult time coping with the job? Um, you know, we do at times, and 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 I, we wouldn't be human um, otherwise. I think it's it's some of the things that we experience and see are certainly things that other people aren't going to experience and see. But at the same time. In emergency response within aviation specifically and I think you'll see this throughout emergency response overall is but in the airline industry we're very structured and we have our checklist for all sorts of things but down to and including taking care of each other and so in the aftermath of, of a disaster it's important that there are options for people um, to take care of themselves whether it be to go to an emotional diffusing a critical incident stress debrief that you exercise, you eat right, all these different things are gonna be brought back to the forefront when you think, I'm too tired, I don't wanna exercise, or I don't wanna talk about it. Well, you don't have to, you can go into a CISD or diffusing and just listen. But it's nice to have those kinds of things available. Um, For American Airlines, and I believe other airlines do this too, we were afforded not only those opportunities, but if we wanted to see a counselor or a therapist, for example, in the aftermath, we were, given that opportunity to do so and we could select somebody we wanted to see and the company took care of that they were very good at giving us time off to decompress uh, things of that nature so taking advantage of those things help lessen um, that uh, the anxiety of the response and whatnot but it does change you I mean I'd be remiss if I said you know I I go into an accident and I respond and I come out exactly the way I was going in that's not the case yeah Uh, things that weren't uh, that were important to me before aren't thing priorities shift, um, and I think that's that's true for many of us that respond. Well, I know there's certainly a lot there that uh, you know anybody would have to kind of decompress from. So, uh, kind of shifting gears here, what is it that you do between events like this? I mean, because it's not something, fortunately, I, I find that happens every day. These these are kind of I like to think rare occurrences. So, do you have some kind of other uh, other gig or other job that you you, you work on uh, in the meantime? You know, I, I have to smile when you ask that question because I, I get that question a lot too, and it's like, well, you know, you're not responding to accidents all the time, so what are you doing the rest of the time? Well, there's, you know, a response just doesn't occur. There's enormous amount of planning and coordination that takes place. And and that's for any professional emergency response planner or business continuity planner. Within the airline industry, though, it's it's even somewhat more perplexing um, from this perspective. So most people, when I worked for American Airlines, for example, said, oh, well, Ken's the emergency response manager. And, and that was true. We had a right. small department, had several senior analysts, and it certainly wasn't just me. It's, it's a team and collaborative effort. But we didn't only respond for American Airlines accidents. Today in aviation, airlines have alliances, or they belong to alliances, and they have also marketing agreements called code shares. Really? And so what you see is that for let's say alliances, for example, where uh, American Airlines is part of the One World Alliance. So for any of those partner airlines or alliance partners that fly into and out of the United States, if they have an accident in the United States, American agrees to start the emergency response process for them until they're able to get their corporate teams available and in the air. If they're coming from an international location, which most of them are, you're looking at 12 to 24 hours before they can arrive. And then you have a transition period. So there's 16 airlines possibly that we may have to at American Airlines when I was there respond to. And then you look at code shares. Code shares are different than an alliance. And a code share simply is 
it's maybe it's an American Airlines plane, but um, say British Airways may put their code, if you will, their colors on that flight. And so it's an American Airlines aircraft, but you book a ticket through British Airways like it's a British Airways flight. Right. So if that plane has an accident, because it's American Airlines, we're going to respond. So it's not just American and then American Eagle. It becomes those 16 alliance carriers that we have to look out for, plus all the code share partners. Then you have all the coordination of how you would respond for those partners. So it, it is very much a full-time job just on the coordination aspect of emergency response and planning, along with your exercises and drills that are continually um, performed during the course of the year. Not to mention that, I mean, it's a full-time job in the sense that you could get a call in the middle of the night about something oh, like oh, exactly. that. Oh, yeah. exactly. It's at 24 time, hours a day, seven days a week. Of course, yeah. Right. <laughs> There's always something going on. That's right. Um, so I wanted to ask, is there, and, I, and we don't, we only have about a minute left in this segment, but uh, right after any kind of crisis or, or disaster happens, um, what happens What happens for you? Do you just get a call from somebody? Do you happen to be at the you know, at the office? Uh, what, what are the first steps you take? Uh, what, what, is, what usually happens with the public? Kind of walk us through kind of a scenario a little bit. Well, I th- to answer that question just briefly, and, and, and I will just say from a notification standpoint, most carriers and most companies today have an automated notification system where once there's a notification of an event, they're going to send out this mass notification to all the key stakeholders. And when we come back from the break, let's talk more about that and get into the, the, the nitty and gritty of accident response. More of the Black Box coming up. segment of the black box with ken jenkins believe it or not my name is zach i'm the producer and i'm uh, interviewing ken on kind of just some basic uh basic questions about what he does and how he got here um so right to, to jump right back into where we were before the break can i ask you right after any kind of crisis or disaster happens what are the first like initial state steps you take is a crisis manager there is a manager is there a checklist or to-do list or a, uh, what's the procedure well, Zach, great question, and, and yes, you're exactly right. There are checklists, and or um, uh, we call them checklists. Um, there are a number of procedures that need to be followed. So one of the things we do, we talk about notification before the break. So we would be notified of the event uh, via uh, text message, and um, through the checklist procedures, and it became important that we would notify our volunteer team members that we've had an accident or whatever the event was and that we are going to mobilize. So it's not just a one-step notification. First, um, first level folks are, are notified, and then you're gonna have subsequent notifications that take place. But at that point, what you're going to see within any organization, and, and most ER plans are various stakeholders that have key functions that need to be performed are gonna follow those immediate items that need to be taken care of right away. And so that's what the checklist is, um, are for. The checklists are to help get you through those initial hours of immediate tasks that need to be taken care of. So for us, it was notifying our team members, uh, making sure that we verified uh, preliminary or 
had a preliminary manifest and then verified the pasture manifest that it was transmitted to the National Transportation Safety Board, that our toll-free line was immediately established so family, family members that heard of the news could call the Telephone Inquiry Center. Um, and while we're going through our checklists, then the Corporate Communications Department, they're going through their checklists. Our System Operation Control is going through their checklists on how to lock out the pasture manifest, for example, and other activities they have to do. Reservations and flight and flight service, all of these uh, functioning departments that have key responses to do are all going through their checklists at the same time. At the station where the accident occurs, the airline personnel, they have their own checklists and how they're going to interact with airport rescue and firefighting and the police and how they gather information from the site and then get it back to headquarters because everybody's desperate for information. So there's a lot of activity going on um, during those initial hours. It, it, it's very high uh, organized chaos is probably the best way to describe it that'll settle itself out into kind of a rhythm over the next 48 to 72 hours. So something I wanted to inquire, of course, because one of the most important things I would imagine in the process of responding to a to, to, to disaster is, um, you know, notifying family members, of course, relatives, mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what do you find is the most effective way to notify or maybe even uh, console somebody who's lost a family member in a disaster? What do you say to them? How do you even begin that conversation? Well, it, it, certainly is a very difficult and conversation to have and it can be a very emotional conversation to have um, but i'd like to answer your question a couple of ways because some folks may well let me just say it this way even in class what our participants want to see is that the airline goes to the home of of the person that might have passed away or surviving family member to say this is what's happened the reality is it's very challenging to do that today. And the reason is between social media and the 24-hour news coverage today, when people hear of an accident, they go to one of two locations to get information. They're gonna go to the Telephone Inquiry Center, they're gonna call that toll-free number the airline's published, and or they're going to go to the airport, the board point of the flight or the off point where the flight was supposed to land. Um, if the plane crashes in between and they have family members at that crash site, they're gonna go to that, that airport. But they're going to go to one of those two locations, Zach, and they want information right away. They don't want to wait for the notification. Of course. And so, by law, the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act of 1996 says if a family member calls in to the airline or visits the airline and identifies himself as a family member, we have to share with them if they had a reservation for that flight. We may not have it confirmed they were on board that flight yet, but we have to, to share if they were, had a reservation for the flight. So there's that piece of the notification. It's, it's rather immediate, takes place as quickly as possible. The second part of your question was, how do you begin to have that conversation? And one of the things that we, we emphasize in our um, family assistance training programs that most airlines emphasize is that you do so with compassion and empathy and patience. And listening becomes one of your, your key skills. This is not about the responder. It's about the family that you're working with. And so we try to do our best to slow down and move to the pace that the family member is ready to go at. If they're anxious and want information, we give them that information as quickly as possible. If they have questions, we give them answers to those questions. I mean, the number one thing that we've heard before is family members want information. And the goal of the airline volunteer that's responding is to provide that information. 
So something I wanted to ask, and we've only got about three minutes left here, so we're probably about time for one more question, but in the modern world, we have social media, we've got just news media. News travels fast, mm-hmm. and sometimes things can get spun out of control. I they mean, can. things can, yeah, things, Very can, things can get weird fast. So I wanted to ask, um, you know, in respect for what you do and, 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 and people who are caught in instances like this, family members, is there anything that the general public can do, uh, typically in the first, you know, just in response to an event like this that can make your job or the whole process easier? There are a number of things the public can do to help make things um, easier, not only for the responders, particularly in an aviation disaster, um, but also for family members in the aftermath of an aviation disaster. I think first and foremost, respect the privacy of the families, uh, of the crew members involved, and the the, the the families of the passengers on board. Of course. Um, I think the second thing, and it might be right up there with the first one, is do not perpetuate theories and conspiracy theories. Um, in, in the immediate aftermath of an accident, there's a lot of misinformation that's out there. And family members, particularly, are, are looking for factual information. And the accident investigators, when they come on scene, will brief family members and provide that information. But perpetuating rumors and um, speculation, speculation, yes. and, and team members are, are told through their, their training and then when they're brief, when they go to work for, with families and to, and to, to um, assist them, is to tell family members and share with them that they're going to hear a lot of things between social media and the media. If they have questions about what they hear to bring it to the attention of the team member, they'll make sure that it gets to the accident investigators who will brief the families about it. But the second piece of that is the airline team members and even the investigators and everybody else, they won't speculate. They will only talk to what they know to be true. So it's hurtful for family members to hear things um, that are conspiracy theories. Um, And I can give you a quick example. Um, On 9-11, American Airlines Flight 77 was flown into the Pentagon, and there was a conspiracy theory that it really wasn't a plane, that it was a missile. Right. Uh, and, And that was really hard. Um, because that that myth was out there for some time, but for the families that lost people on board that plane, they didn't find that conspiracy theory funny, right. entertaining. It, it discounts um, the event. They exactly it discounts their loss and and what they've experienced. Um, and for the record, there was an aircraft. It was a seven fifty seven, and people lost their lives. And it's just harmful when those things are perpetuated um, unnecessarily. Well, Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and speak with me. I'd love to do this again at some point, uh, maybe if we, I don't know, down the road, if you like answering more questions. I'm sure, you know, listeners could submit some if they'd like. Um, but yeah, just thanks so much for the conversation. What you do is, is, is phenomenally interesting. And I don't know, I don't think I've ever had that kind of perspective on, on something that, that a lot of us are concerned about. So thank you. You're welcome, Zach. Thanks so much. For more information on the Black Box with Ken Jenkins, visit us online at kenjenkinsllc.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter.